This week's episode of Astonishing Legends is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus, Policy Genius, Blue Apron, and our contributors at Patreon.com. And we are back. That we are. An upcoming program note. We're dark next week, but returning the week after that with a show on the Kelly Hopkinsville incident. Yeah, that should be fun. We're looking forward to it. And one other note before we get to tonight's show. We wanted to let you guys know that we are both going to be in attendance at Podcast Movement 2017 coming up at the end of August in Anaheim, California. This is our second time going to the now four-year-old conference, which over 2,000 active and aspiring podcasters are attending this year at the Anaheim Marriott. Which, fortunately for us, is Astonishing Legends home office adjacent. <laughs> I, I wouldn't say it's adjacent, but it's a nice drive. As long as you don't do it during rush hour. <laughs> yes. Yeah. The first one we attended in Texas two years ago really helped us transform our show from a glorified hobby that our friends probably laughed at behind our backs into a full-blown business at which our friends are now asking if we have any job openings. Yeah, I don't know if that's really happening either, but it is true. Podcast movement is pretty cool, whether you're a well-established podcaster or just starting out or you just want to come and hear what your favorite podcast hosts have to say about the lay of the podcasting landscape. This year's speaker list is impressive. I personally can't wait to see Dan Carlin. And believe it or not, Forrest and I are both scheduled to be on a few panels ourselves. <laughs> did, did I agree to that? I don't We're also going to be in a booth there from time to time to meet and greet folks, courtesy of our friends at Audio Boom, who are a major sponsor this year. Yeah, if you want to come join us, it's August 23rd through the 25th in Anaheim, California. And you can save $50 off by using the promo code LEGENDS. Five zero. That's Legends fifty. Yes, Legends five zero will save you fifty bucks. Just go to podcastmovement.com/attend. Hope to see you there. Okay, let's get to work. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. The Klingenberg case was, for all those involved, a breathtaking experience. Someone on the outside cannot possibly appreciate this experience. Man's imagination is stretched past the limit when it comes to demonic possession. Father Ernst Alt, quoted from Annalisa Michel, a true story of a case of demonic possession by Lawrence LeBlanc. Well done. Join us tonight for the final part of our series on one of the most controversial exorcisms in history. Here we are with part three of this series. A few people, I think, felt like part two might have been long enough to be part two and three. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, but most it's, people it's, enjoyed it, I think. Yeah, it's almost really a show in itself. I mean, that's kind of how we think about these episodes when we split them out into parts, that each one should be entertaining and a real chunk of itself as like its own little show. But then again, it has to flow from part one to two to three or five or six or seven or eight. But it was an in-depth conversation from a very interesting perspective. And yes, we did get some letters. It's both sides. We always say this. It's all perspectives. It's either it was too religious, he wasn't religious enough. It really just comes down to a personal viewpoint of like, he's too Catholic. He's not Catholic enough. It's just yeah. every, and everything in between. So yeah. when we sit here in the middle, and we do try and be objective, and it's not our job to curb the discussion of the guests. We let them speak their mind. We'll interject our own thoughts and ideas and questions, of course, and, and give our conclusions at the end. But we let them say, their piece. And that's the point of this. Yeah, that is the point. And the other thing we do is because it's a podcast and we get to pick how long it is, at least for now, 
we like to run interviews in their entirety as much as we can. You know, we could be rolling them off and hiding them away, but we think it's a good thing to be able to listen to what people really think so that you're hearing them pretty much entirely in context because we don't make a lot of cuts on what people are saying unless it gets just outright racist or something <laughs> like some well, horrible thing happens. I don't, yeah, yeah, we're going to cut that. <laughs> yeah, we wouldn't have anybody on that that would go straight to that. Yeah, yeah, hopefully not. But, you know, look, I get personally people coming up to me that I know that listen to the show. They might say like, well, that guy was way out there or she was crazy. You know, I mean, nothing yeah. that direct, but if it's new to you, you never heard this before. So a lot of these ideas may sound really out there. But I guarantee you to the person who's studied this field, and it could be UFOs, could be Bigfoot, you know, we had a lot of that in the UFO thing, like, what? That never happened. It's like, that's one of the main cases of ufology. Yeah. It just sounds crazy because you've never heard it before. And so in a case like this, where we're taking an in-depth look at possession and religion and how religion views this and possibly mental illness. And then as you can see here in part three, maybe solely from a clinical physiological mental illness perspective and how that's viewed there, that is the idea of these three parts. We, we presented the case. Here's one viewpoint which kind of bridges the two between religion and science. And then here's something that's more science-based. Yeah. So now tonight, what we're going to talk about is some more plausible medical issues that could have contributed to the symptoms that Annalisa was displaying. And the thing that we found, the more that we went through this, was that most of these different varying conditions, whether they're mental illness or other physical ailments, most of them didn't really cover everything that was going on with her. Now, that's not to say that people can't have a series of concurrent issues mixed up together. Obviously, they can and lots of people do. But these medical conditions that we'll be talking about tonight, you can't just point to them and say, well, this is what it was. This is what happened. In most cases, there is one diagnosis that we'll discuss this evening that possibly has a reputation for being the most likely explanation, not only in Annalisa's case, but in several cases of possession. We're going to talk about that one more towards the end of the show. Yeah, exactly. And it's kind of related to the mystery solved dilemma or the mystery solved line of thinking here where you'll see somebody line up, well, how about this condition? Hey, that explains A, B, and C. So that's got to be it, right? That's what it was. And anything else, we're done talking about this. It's solved. But you're not covering D, E, and F, or the things outside of even that, you know, the G and the H and the I and the J. So the point here is that you'll see some things line up, and because you want to be able to categorize this, because that's the comfortable position for human beings to be able to define stuff and not have stuff like, that's so crazy, there's no explanation for that. That's an uncomfortable position to be in. So you want to be able to fold that into something that's rational and understandable. And so it's like, well, you know what? Never mind D, E, and F. A through B is enough. It explains that we're done. It's like, well, there's some unanswered questions here. So to what Scott was saying, there are some conditions here that are medical and in the psychological realm that, yeah, it, a lot of things line up and it sounds very likely. But again, it doesn't cover everything. And I don't think that you can ignore those things. Some people do. Some people say like the Michael Shermer thing, there's 20% we, we don't really know. So we're going to set that aside and forget about it. It's like that 20%, that's what I want to know about. And I know there's no answers. Yeah. You're not going to get something that's satisfying 
but I think it should be thought about. And that's just me, so. Well, no, and I agree with you, and it's a good thing, or we wouldn't have a show, so. <laughs> <laughs> if you already said that, we're done. The mystery's solved. It's a 20-minute show. We're done. And I know a lot of people would probably like that, but, but I got to be the stick in the mud who says, hey, what about this? And again, there's no answers, especially like with this case, no matter your viewpoint, whether you're Father John Duffy, whether you are Ernst Alt, or you are a clinical psychiatrist who says, well, it lines up a lot like this. With her case, the problem is that she is not alive anymore. You can't ask her and you weren't there. As we said before, any clinician will tell you, you can't diagnose somebody long distance. You have to be there. You have to start a case file. You have to study this. You have to apply your training and past cases and any diagnostics you can use and experience. And also clinicians will tell you that you can't ignore the religious aspect if that's what the person believes, because that is also part of their mental health and their well-being. So all these factors have to come in. And you can't ignore any of them. And there's just so many, in this case particularly, we're never going to know. Each one of these positions that we've covered here at some point will cross over into subjective speculation. That's just part of it. Here's the first one that we wanted to look at tonight that we mentioned a little bit in the earlier parts and didn't really go in depth on. And that is obsessive compulsive disorder is possibly being an explanation behind some of the physical symptoms that she had in terms of control over her own body and what she was doing at any given moment. And this goes back a while for us because back when we did the sludge entity story, we had a friend of the show who contacted us and informed us that he had been battling obsessive compulsive disorder. And in the course of that battle, before he got it under control, he experienced a lot of things very, very similar to what the boy did in the Sludge Entity story, which had some parallel ground with what happened to Annalisa Michel. That boy's parents did look at that kind of diagnosis and didn't find that it was applicable in their case. For whatever reason, they were able to solve that problem without doing any sort of treatment that you would do for OCD, to be clear. Right. And unlike Annalisa Michelle, this is, of course, fairly current. So they were able to utilize different fields. They went to a neurologist. Well, Annalisa did as well. But they also went to a child psychologist. They conferred with a family pediatrician. They looked into neuropathy. They checked out as many different fields as they could afford or could think of. Yes. And was recommended to them. And yes. it depends on who you talk to. So if you go to the Western medical doctors, homeopathy, eh, you could try it. It's not going to hurt you. Try some stuff in your diet. Maybe some herbs will help. But we can't really recommend that. And so these different branches don't venture into the other ones because that's just not part of their wheelhouse, you could say. But that's the case with the sludge entity is that you get to a point, and this kind of came up because people said like, well, obviously it's this. You guys were irresponsible because you didn't do this. This is the answer. Well, as we said in defense of the parents, they tried that and there was no answer there. So what do you do? You keep going. Do you stop or do you try everything? And that was the answer. I got to say, I will defend this to the end. That was the answer is you try things that you normally don't agree with or even think about. And for whatever reason, it worked. And in my view, you can't argue with that. 
Right. And I think that's really interesting. So getting further into the discussion of obsessive compulsive disorder, I decided knowing absolutely nothing about it and having no claim of knowing anything about it. And I want to remind everyone that we are not experts on anything. We are storytellers. So. <laughs> in, the, in the vein of John Alva Keel, not an expert on anything. So Yeah, you have, to, yeah. Um, you have to take anything we say with a grain of salt. However, we can sometimes get in touch with professionals who are experts on on things, and that's what we decided to do with regard to obsessive compulsive disorder. So I decided that we would try and find someone to interview about OCD. So I set out in search of an expert on OCD who had the time and the inclination to sit down with us for a bit and share what they thought about Annalise's case. And I was thrilled to hear back from the kind folks at the Houston OCD program in Texas. And I'd like to thank the program manager there, Sahara Shrout, for reading my litany of unusual emails about an exorcism (laughs) from the 70s in Germany and still agreeing to try and find someone to come on our show and talk about it. And more specifically, if there might be some kind of connection between Annalise's case and OCD. So I want to set this up a little bit. The Houston OCD program works with clients to provide a compassionate therapeutic environment while implementing evidence-based treatment techniques to provide the most effective treatment for the individual. They specialize in cognitive behavioral therapy, particularly exposure and response prevention, and other effective treatment techniques for anxiety and anxiety-related disorders. They deliver individualized evidence-based treatment for individuals struggling with obsessive-compulsive disorder, which is OCD, anxiety disorders, obsessive-compulsive spectrum disorders, phobias, and depression with both residential support and intensive outpatient programs. Now, Sahara connected us with one of their doctors, clinical psychologist Dr. Jennifer Sai, who, as one might have gathered, specializes in treatment of OCD and anxiety disorders. Dr. Sai, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, no problem. It seems like a really interesting topic. (laughs) Well, it's definitely something unusual. I would say that for sure. The first thing I want to do is have you talk a little bit about uh, what you do and who you are. Sure. So, um... I'm Jennifer Sai. I am a clinical psychologist at the Houston OCD program. Uh, we specialize in treating OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, and anxiety disorders. Okay. And how long have you been doing that? I started treating anxiety, I guess, in 2007, but um, I, I've been here um, at the program for about four years now. Okay. Is there a particular area of expertise, like a subset of different types of OCD and anxiety that you work with, or is it just broadly anything in that realm? Um, We generally take uh, whatever comes through. I think that um, what we tend to see is, you know, in the anxiety disorders, we see a lot of panic panic disorders, so people with um, panic attacks, social anxiety, um, more generalized anxiety. With an OCD, I think you see a lot of contamination fear, but also fear of one's own thoughts. So um, often feeling that you have like these repetitive, unacceptable, intrusive thoughts that seem to, you know, that come up repeatedly or, you know, fears of harming, that they might have harmed someone, scrupulosity, uh, that comes up a fair bit around here. So um, it's a bit of a mix. Okay. And is there a a brief definition of what obsessive compulsive disorder is that you could relay to our listeners? First of all, you know, you need to have obsessions. So obsessions are very repetitive, um, unwanted, really distressing 
sometimes there are thoughts, sometimes there are images, sometimes there are urges that come up. And so I think that repetitive might be the key word here, because I think that we all have intrusive thoughts or memories or impulses that we don't like. But I think that the difference, which I can talk more about in everyday intrusive thoughts and obsession is kind of what people with OCD tend to do with the obsession. And so often there are compulsions and reaction to the obsession, meaning they've engaged in some repetitive behavior that um, designed to try to get rid of the obsession or neutralize it in some way or reduce their anxiety or prevent it from happening. And so these compulsions can be physical, sometimes they're mental, they can look very different depending on what the person's individual fears are. And then I think the really important part is the obsessions and compulsions are interfering with somebody's functioning. So it's not something like a quirk of theirs or something that they enjoy doing. It's, you know, definitely something that's interfering with their ability to do things in life. And so the behavior associated with it that you say that sort of helps people feel better or deal with the obsession that they're having, is that a kind of self-medication in a way? Yeah, the key is that, you know, you're trying to do something to get rid of, maybe if you think a bad thought and you don't like it, maybe you try to do something to replace that thought in your head or to, you know, maybe get forgiveness for it or somehow cancel it out or just maybe distract yourself to, or just trying to reduce your anxiety. And so then there might be a short-term relief, but um, it becomes a problem because it's only short-term and it ends up getting you stuck in the cycle. Okay. Do we know whether or not OCD is uh, biological or hereditary, or do you feel like it's something that can be brought about by environmental conditioning? You're right about all of those. Um, there's quite a bit of research looking at um, biological underpinnings, um, genetics, and, and the, in the role of the environment. And I think none of them, are, um, you know, 100% predict whether you developed OCD, but I, I think that we do know that there are certain risk factors. Okay. Can you outline any of those risk factors? So we do know that people, you know, with parents, you know, with OCD are more likely to develop OCD themselves, um, though that can be difficult because we don't know, is it because your parents, is it because your parents are raising you a certain way and you're learning behaviors from them, or is it because of genetics? And so they've looked at twin studies and then they would say maybe some of both. Uh-huh. I know that people have looked at the role of serotonin and OCD and uh, just differences, if there are any consistent differences in brain structure or seeing that there may be actually differences in brain circuitry um, before and after um, medication, treatment with medication, or even cognitive behavioral therapy. Right. There's something there. I think that there's a lot that we still don't know. Can OCD be cured or is it just managed by people who are able to treat it? This is a question that is asked a lot. It's, sometimes it's um, a question of semantics because I think that, is it realistic to say that you'll never have a distressing thought ever again that you get stuck with? Uh, that seems unrealistic, but I think a lot of people do find a significant reduction in maybe how often they're bothered by sure. symptoms. And I think that knowing that sometimes these symptoms are on a spectrum, so it's not like, you know, it just completely disappears from your body or brain. Sure. It's really yeah. something that you might have to work on on an ongoing basis for most people. What are the most effective treatments? Is behavioral <laughs> treatment better than medication or is it vice versa or just a, it's a case-by-case -case basis? Most evidence-based treatments, I hesitate to say talk therapy, but the most therapy would be exposure and response prevention. Um, often people do, you know, I think that it has a very high success rate as does medication, usually I think antidepressants, and when they're together, they can be very effective as well. 
often people choose to do one or the other just because of their preferences. Sometimes people's OCD um, makes it hard for them to tolerate medication or fearful of medication and, right. or vice versa. Sure. That makes sense. I actually didn't think about that. I have a friend that suffers from it a bit and he seems to have an obsession with uh, different vitamins and things he's always taking. So mm-hmm. I, I could see where... I can really get in the way sometimes. Yeah, sure, sure. We all have intrusive thoughts or things that happen. What? How do you identify whether somebody's just having a normal amount of these sorts of thoughts or is diagnosed as officially having obsessive compulsive disorder? That's a really good question. So, you know, I think that we can all say, hey, maybe I've had this intrusive thought, you know, maybe this thought that's kind of sticky for me or has been bothering me for a while. Um, So often we find that the differences in content aren't different from someone with OCD and someone without OCD. You know, you could have a pretty horrific thought and it's not necessarily OCD, but the difference is the frequency, you know, how often is it happening? Um, how distressed are you? How much time are you spending on this thought? So sometimes it's a judgment call, like, is it impairing your functioning? Sure. Or, you know, is it getting in the way of your ability to focus in school? You know, and has it been happening for a while or does it seem like this is a very transient reaction? What are your beliefs about the thought? So sometimes people believe, you know, not only was this a really unpleasant thought, but if I don't get rid of it, I'll go crazy or something bad will happen to me or there's something unique about this thought or maybe it's coming from something bad. So it's just kind of like our thoughts about the thoughts are different. Right. So maybe something really bad will happen if I don't cancel out this thought. Okay. Or I'll be punished. This case so far has been as fascinating as it's been tragic. I mean, it's covered everything from religion to cultural anthropology, neurobiology, and now psychology. Well, we do love to learn about new things around here, which is why we're always heading over to the Great Courses Plus to see if there are any lectures on something we're covering. And it turns out they do have a series called Origins of the Human Mind, which addresses OCD. Wow, I'm going to have to binge through that one too. Along with the one we're on, The Black Death, The World's Most Devastating Plague. The Great Courses Plus app makes that easy to do because I can download them to my phone or tablet and take them with me. Why, just the other day, I knocked out a couple of lectures while my car was being worked on sitting in the customer lounge. Yeah, instead of flipping through that old copy of People magazine, you can actually spend your downtime learning something. So you should be about done with the Black Death, right? Yeah, just wrapped up the big finale, actually. All right, so what'd you learn? Well, mostly, and this is surprising, it ain't over yet. I'm sure a lot of people think that the Black Death and Plague was all in the Middle Ages and that it's ancient history, nothing to see here, folks. But that's not the truth. In fact, the third major pandemic at the end of the 19th century in India and China has never been officially declared over. And in 1994, there was a plague outbreak in Surat, India, and shortly after that, an outbreak in Madagascar. And the frightening thing is that the strain found there was resistant to all known antibiotics used to treat plague. It's been mutating itself, borrowing material from E. coli and salmonella and rewriting its own genetic code through lateral gene transfer in order to survive. (laughs) Well, that's a cheerful thought and another reason not to pick up that People magazine. (laughs) All right, so what's the good news? Well, the good news is humanity prevails. Ah, that we do. You know, many scholars believe the plague sparked the Renaissance and other positive changes at a terrible price, of course. But in the end, we're not that easy to get rid of. We endure. We think you'll love learning about all kinds of fascinating stuff like we do. So here's a special offer. You can sign up right now for The Great Courses Plus and get an entire month of unlimited access to all of their lectures for free. 
To start your free month today, sign up with our special URL, which is thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. Remember, that's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. I'm Claire from Canada, and when I'm not searching for the meaning of life, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. So prior to me contacting you, had you ever heard of Annalisa Michel? No, I tend to avoid scary movies myself. <laughs> right. But okay. I was very interested to hear about it. I guess that brings us to the main reason I wanted to talk to you, because there's been a lot of theories about what was wrong with her. And we've done two parts of our show on her so far. The first one was really just the story of what happened to her and the nature of the exorcism they attempted, and then, unfortunately, her death. And then we had a second episode where we spoke with somebody who had some experience with exorcism, oh. but also is going to school in mental health. And so he believes in possession, but he firmly believes that she had mental health issues and was not possessed. So that was the last... Right, you could believe in both. Sure, right. And that was the point we were trying to make to our audience. So I guess what I wanted to know from you, firstly, is with regard to her behavior, which was very specific. And it's something a lot of people would attribute to the idea of someone being possessed. She had aversions to certain objects, specifically religious objects. Mm -hmm. She would have an inability to enter a space like a church or a shrine and <laughs> she couldn't go in or she had a hard time attending mass. She right. had an overwhelming urge to take all her clothes off and go see a friend of hers in her dorm at school a couple of times. She'd mentioned that to um, a father she was working with. And sure. in other cases, she couldn't walk at all without help. Her legs were stiff or they would give out. Mm -hmm. And additionally, she had some eating issues where she would say, I can't eat right now or quickly now, feed me, it's okay. Like it would mm -hmm. come mm -hmm. and go. And finally, paralysis as well. And there's some reason to believe that she had epilepsy, which may have been mm -hmm. working in conjunction right. with all this. But I just wanted to know if any of these things sound like they might be symptomatic of OCD. And I also wanted to know if you could explain a little bit about scrupulosity to our listeners, because I only learned about it last week. And I, oh, thought that, sure. I thought that was really fascinating. And if you thought there might be any connections between that and some of the things I just mentioned about her behavior. Sure. So I, I guess before we go into the individual symptoms, sometimes what you really have to look at when you're deciding whether this is indicative of OCD is really figuring out the function of the behavior. So that said, you know, aversions to religious objects sometimes do happen with um, scrupulosity because for some people, um, maybe seeing a picture of a religious figure um, prompts, triggers bad thoughts about, you know, that religious, you know, uncontrolled bad thoughts. And so, you know, for some people, it's, there's a paradoxical reason why that might happen. If you think like, oh, I'm in church, like, what's the worst possible thing I could be thinking about right now? And then you think of that thing, right? Right. right. And so sometimes that's easier for us to tolerate. So with somebody with really high anxiety or really rigid morality that extends to their thoughts, you can imagine how distressing that would be. So to the point that maybe you don't even want to go in church at all, or you don't want to look at that crucifix on the wall, because what if it starts triggering those thoughts again? Because again, like the compulsions that they do to try to cancel out those things from happening actually make the obsessions worse. So sometimes they would just want to avoid it entirely. But that said, you have to kind of know like the function. Well, why are you avoiding this? Or what are the thoughts, feelings, and behaviors that come up when you approach this object? 
So that's something that I guess we'd have to ask on Elise. Oh, yeah, sure. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah, so it's really about avoiding triggers, things that trigger this behavior in yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we would just need to know what she was thinking. Right, right, which obviously we can't. Um, and, you know, and especially now that she's passed away. So there's a limited amount of figuring this out that we can do in hindsight. Sure. Yeah. So what is scrupulosity? So scrupulosity, well, I know it was interesting because when I became um, more, I think I, my first scrupulosity case was back in graduate school, actually a referral from a priest. Oh. I got to learn, you know, if you go to a Catholic bookstore, um, there's a lot of writings about scrupulosity that are separate from psychology. And so it's like this idea of this rigid kind of religious obsessions, right? And so this fear that maybe you are doing the wrong thing or you're going to think the wrong thoughts. And sometimes it's over-interpretation of scripture. Sometimes it's feeling tempted to do something bad or say something blasphemous and this idea that you're going to be punished for it. Or sometimes there can be a really wide variety. So some people have this vague sense and guilt that they're sinning and some people really actually feel like the devil is tempting them. And that can get a little bit tricky to parse out. So again, religious obsessions, like this fear of um, maybe being offensive to God or doing something offensive to God and compulsions, right? Uh, Maybe efforts to make sure they're forgiven, maybe saying prayers like over and over and over and over again, or maybe avoiding certain things because that will um, lead to triggers or sometimes trying to cancel out the thoughts in their heads or trying to compensate for it in some other way. Is it specifically associated with Catholicism? Oh, no, it's usually associated. I think a lot of it's been studied, but I think that there is evidence of scrupulosity with almost all major religions. I think when there's maybe rules, you know, in play, which is, I would say, most major religions, right? Sure. Yeah, so I think in, in Judaism, Hinduism, I've also worked with um, people um, struggling with religious obsessions. Usually you're, you tend to be pretty strongly religious yourself because OCD usually attacks things that we care about, right? So if you were an atheist, you probably wouldn't have scrupulosity because you wouldn't care enough. Right. It seems like there's parallels here between not only Annalise's case, but possibly other cases that might be Mm-hmm. Uh, might have been earmarked as yeah. a possession because it seems like there's a really a lot of possible common ground between scrupulosity mm-hmm. and the idea of when somebody is possessed. Sure. I remember reading from psychologists and clergy talking about how speculating, I think that's maybe some of the saints, I guess, to go for the Catholic examples again, may have also suffered from scrupulosity in some form. There are some writings on it. So oh, that's fascinating. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, with regard to some of these physical symptoms that Annalisa had, do you find that any of those have any common ground with severe cases of OCD, whether it's scrupulosity or not? Uh, like paralysis or sure. inability to enter a space? Obviously, I would say yes, because even I know that. Mm-hmm. Also, she was speaking in uh, Latin a lot, which she knew, by the way. She never spoke in a language she sure. didn't know. But these types of things, do you think those could have been manifestations of obsessive compulsive disorder? I mean, speaking in multiple voices or... In Latin, I mean, it, it seems less common, definitely less likely. Again, we'd have to ask 
what was the function of it? Was it to get rid of a thought or threat? Generally, it's not something we really see. Sometimes it might look bizarre from the outside, um, but uh, I don't know if that's necessarily like something I would earmark as an OCD symptom specifically. Okay. It could also be something else, especially with paralysis, right? So sometimes people might have the thought, I can't move until I, I can fix this thought or until I'm forgiven or I feel forgiven for this thought. And so you could kind of maybe see that paralysis it can happen and people can certainly get stuck. But um, sometimes it could also be more of a catatonia, which is really less common in OCD. But there are examples of that. Depending on the function of the behavior. Right. She suffered from catatonia as well for mm-hmm. quite some time, laying on the floor right. up to 12 hours overnight, just lying mm-hmm. there sort of non-responsive. Sure. So, To you, I mean, I know you obviously don't know a whole lot about this particular case, but would you feel that it's possible that that was what she was suffering from or part of what she was suffering from? I mean, it's, it does seem like it could be a part of it. I know that she had um, a long history of feeling like she needed to atone mm-hmm. for things all the time. So a kind of chronic feeling of guilt. And and so I guess what I would want to know, too, is how much of this was it really internal for her versus external? Because I think that sometimes people with OCD um, get misdiagnosed as psychosis um, just because the difference might be, is it really feeling like something is coming from like an outside being or is it actually your thoughts? And so if you don't know that everyone has intrusive thoughts, it can be really easy for somebody to ask leading questions and say like, oh, you know, what kind of voice is this? Is it a male voice or a female voice? And then you start thinking, I don't know, male. And then that would change the differential diagnosis, if that makes sense. Yes, it does. How would you approach it without being leading, unless you were professionally trained, I guess? I think you would want to rule out a few different things. Um, And then also like OCD, part of the diagnostic criteria is, are these behaviors better explained by maybe a different condition or a medical disorder. So if there could be medications at work or maybe other untreated conditions. Right. Okay. So you'd want to rule those out as well. In your studies and your education and in your work, what do you think the medical community's position is on the idea of possession versus someone having strictly medical problem in a case like this? Yeah, I definitely can't speak for the entire psychiatric medical community. Uh, right. <laughs> Personally, I know that um, sometimes the cultural context of our experiences make a a really big difference. So I think that sometimes there are other cultures, you know, who might believe in possession, but it's like not considered a bad thing. So maybe I've been told of instances where, you know, someone had a seizure and they felt like they were being possessed, but it was like by a good spirit. And so they were treated a lot better and they were able to function much better in the community and hold a different job and much better outcomes. So on one hand, it's just like, well, yeah, you really need to respect other people's beliefs. And of course, like as a scientist, you can't really necessarily definitively rule out anything. It's possible. I think that sometimes though, like the narrative you choose can make a really big difference for someone's in prognosis, right? So imagine if we tell someone like, well, we all have intrusive thoughts. It might make it a lot easier for someone to maybe take risks to not engage in compulsions and face their fears and be able to tolerate their anxiety. Whereas if you tell them, you know, the intrusive thoughts come from the devil, then it makes it really imperative to get rid of those thoughts, right? Which paradoxically, as people learn in Psych 101, sometimes the more you try not to think about a thought, the more you think it. So You can see how damaging it could be if someone is told, hey, you know, don't have these thoughts because they're coming from the devil and it means all kinds of really awful outcomes for you. It's kind of like my friends in high school used to say, don't lick your lips. 
or <laughs> don't. Right, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Don't think so, of an elephant. And I think that we don't really talk about our internal experiences very much. So I think that especially, you know, back then, so thinking about how you describe like an intrusive thought can be really difficult to put into words and very susceptible to leading questions. Right. And one of the things that Annalisa experienced were these grimacing faces that she called Fratzen, which mm-hmm. I guess is German for grimace. And that was, sure. they were flashing in front of her frequently. Because mm-hmm. when you, at the at the beginning of our interview, you mentioned that it wasn't just thoughts, it could also be images, which I was not aware of until you just said that. That's an obsessive compulsive a symptom of it is to... It, it can be. And so it's a really tricky distinction, right? So maybe where does Annalisa think that they're coming from? Is, it, is she actually seeing the faces or is it really like a mental image, which, you know, I think that we all can have conjure up mental images ourselves, right? Yes. And so that would make a really big difference. In your brief look at her case, do you think that it's possible that she was misdiagnosed or just not properly diagnosed before she was, I guess, essentially taken into this exorcism, which didn't work out and ultimately Mm -hmm. led to her death? This is a really young field of inquiry. There's a lot that we didn't know back then. You would have to rule out, you know, is it OCD? Is it actually more like psychosis? What are some of the rule outs that we want to take into account? So, yeah, I mean, I think that there probably would have been more questions that we could have asked her because I think that we would probably want to rule out explanations that are related to uh, less complicated treatments, right, than an exorcism. So we would want to make sure that we had definitely exhausted all these other ones first, and it sounds like there might have been more questions that could have been asked. Yeah, and that was a little bit the crux of our last episode as well. It just seemed like a lot of possibilities were overlooked, and Mm -hmm. it, it might have taken her in the wrong direction without fairly analyzing it. My co-host had wanted to know if OCD was handled more by psychiatrist or psychologist and what the difference between the two professions is with regard to obsessive compulsive disorder. So they can go hand in hand. It really depends. Sometimes people might be referred by like a primary care doctor and then they start off with medication. And so we get a lot of referrals from psychiatrists. And so maybe they may start out on an antidepressant, but um, maybe they don't want to be on it forever or medications don't necessarily get rid of thoughts either, right? It might lessen your anxiety and reaction to it. Sometimes it might decrease the frequency, but usually... For some people, they really need a lot of education knowing like, hey, it's not that the thoughts will completely go away and wanting the thoughts to go away can actually make things worse. And so often people do one or the other or both. We've been able to really respect people's decisions on that. So I don't know the exact percentage, but we see a fair amount of OCD and we have a psychiatrist who um, sees a lot of our clients as well. Sure. Okay. For people that have OCD, Would you say that it goes in hand in hand with other conditions, a lot of conditions that maybe are common that always are accompanying it? Or is it more of an isolated diagnosis? It's it's the one thing that somebody is dealing with or it just varies? Yeah, no, I think that's a really great question. So it's from a neuroscience perspective, we don't see that there are necessarily, this is an OCD part of your brain, or this looks like where versus panic disorder. Um, the way I conceptualize it is that, you know, OCD um, and the anxiety disorders, we often have a fear of something, right? And we avoid it, or we do something to kind of make it go away. And that actually kind of backfires and makes things worse. And so with panic, we're afraid of our physical symptoms. With social anxiety, we're afraid of social situations with OCD, we're often afraid of our thoughts. But you can think of the common ground there is avoidance, right? And so 
genetically, sometimes there are common markers like so OCD and uh, maybe occasionally relationship with like bipolar disorder or schizophrenia. So sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between OCD with poor insights and uh, psychosis. Um, right. Because, well, do you think that the devil is possessing you or do you know? You know, so that can be a, a very subtle difference. Sure. What has been posited about Annalisa that was that she was suffering from a combination of possible psychoses, bipolar disorder, as well as possibly uh, some shades of schizophrenia. So there was a question as to whether or not that was related. And I think if you took that and then you combined that with scrupulosity, you could be mm-hmm. almost perfectly describing 99% of her behavior. Again, you know, if we're, we're speculating, but yes. it, it doesn't yeah. seem too far-fetched. Right. And also, I shouldn't leave epilepsy out of that picture because she had a great deal of uh, physical seizures. Which is not necessarily consistent with OCD. Right. That would be unrelated. Right. Okay. That's good to know. Forrest, who is my co-host, had also outed us as sometimes saying, we sort of joke about, well, oh, oh, we're being a little OCD or I have a little OCD. Sometimes it seems like a joke in the vernacular. And sure. we've had some complaints from listeners about mm-hmm. that, that we're being inconsiderate or insensitive towards people that yeah. really have it. So at what point, for instance, I have a friend who mm-hmm. can't leave a room without shaking hands with everybody that's in the room. At what point do you say, okay, it's just kind of a tick or something, or we can diagnose you with obsessive compulsive disorder? Mm-hmm. That's something we've discussed with a lot of our patients feel um, sometimes really invalidated. You know, sometimes they'll, they're like working through OCD treatment and maybe a family member says, oh, I have a little OCD too, you right. know, but I can't forget about it. So I think that the idea is like, well, I like faced my OCD. Why can't you? So yeah, just people are on TV are making light of their difficulties. And you're right. Like, I think that sometimes it's on a spectrum and the difference between OCD and like what we call obsessive compulsive personality. So OCD is not really something that you would ever, or you would really take pride in. You're doing these compulsions because you can't help it. And it's associated with like really intense fear or anxiety. And so it's not really something you want and you feel like it's irrational and it's distressing to you, but when you have pretty good insights and it gets in the way of your functioning, whereas, you know, if you like to, you know, have things a certain way and it kind of looks nice to you and it feels like a little bit of a badge of honor, that's probably not OCD. Right. Have you ever encountered any medical professionals that are open to the idea that in their treatment, they're dealing with something more than a medical issue, like relating to possibly a spiritual problem or something that actually would involve the help of the clergy or somebody outside of the medical Mm -hmm. profession. Especially with scrupulosity, we do like to involve a religious leader from their community, not necessarily because of possession specifically, but because this is really about people's beliefs. And so I think that it could be very... um, damaging and definitely not helpful to say, hey, well, this is just your OCD and um, really making sure that we're not like stomping all over their values, especially when we're doing exposures and things that make them feel uncomfortable and making sure we're not violating their religious beliefs. So for a lot of people that, you know, can be very, very much. So I think often for a lot of our severe cases, they really need to have um, clergy involved to kind of validate the therapy for them. You know, yeah, if you do end up thinking a curse word in church, you know, is God going to punish you or not? And just getting that collateral information, and especially if maybe the compulsions to confess, and just making sure we're all on the same page. Sure. Well, Dr. Sai, thank you very, very much for your time. I really appreciate it. I know our listeners are going to uh, enjoy hearing your perspective on this. Thank you. 
Hey, what are you doing? I'm just putting up some sound panels over here. Oh! Careful, man. You, you got a wife and kid to think about. Plus, you have all the bank account information for the show. Do you have any life insurance? Uh, oh, thanks for your concern, <laughs> which I detect a little bit of snarkiness in it. But well, you're right, though. Life insurance is really important because, yes, anything can happen at any time. And, yes, I actually just got a quote to see if there was anything out there better than what I had. And I used PolicyGenius.com, and it only took about five minutes to apply. Well, that's one smart thing you did because PolicyGenius.com is the place to go to learn about life insurance, compare quotes from America's top providers, providers and save up to 40% on your policy. It's kind of like TurboTax for insurance. Yeah, it is. And you'd think there'd already be an online service like that, but it's never existed before. Policy Genius has placed over $5 billion in life insurance. I got to be honest, I can't remember the last time I looked into life insurance, and I don't remember how it all worked, but I do remember that it wasn't much fun dealing with all those agents who are just out to make a commission. But PolicyGenius.com has a simple, user-friendly website that helps you work out exactly which policy is right for you, and it finds you the best price. If you have any questions, they have a team of licensed experts waiting to talk you through it. You get real customer service human beings. And they don't just do life insurance. You can get health insurance or you can even insure your pet. You can protect your income. And if a policy isn't right for your situation, they'll tell you that too. Look, the point is, if something were to happen to you, you got to make sure your family's taken care of. So if you've been putting off life insurance or you want to make sure the insurance you have is right for you, check out policygenius.com today. You can save up to 40% just by comparing policies. The quotes are free. There's no sales pressure, and zero hassle. PolicyGenius.com. It's life insurance for the 21st century. This is Jim. Thank you for listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. Well, that was really fascinating, and it answered a lot of questions I had about OCD in general. Yeah, it was interesting. And I know that I have, for a fact, as I said in the interview, I have a few friends that suffer from it, for sure. Not to mention the one that we referenced before the show, who's a friend of the show. And right. including my friend who I said in the interview, can't leave a room without shaking hands with everybody in the room. It's an interesting thing you brought up here, because there, to me, and I guess clinically as well, there's the dividing line. Yeah. There are things that I like to do. I like to have a certain way, and maybe those are just ticks, like I like to have the right pen to write with, or if I just meet somebody, I always do shake their hand before we leave. To me, that's just politeness. The dividing line here, or the crossing line, is that you can't not do it. He can't leave the room. Right. You know, if I stand up and somebody looks like they don't want to shake, you know, maybe they're germophobic and they don't shake my hand, like, I'm fine with that. I can leave the room. If I don't have the right pen, I can still write anyway. Where it becomes debilitating, that's the dividing line. You can't stop thinking about it and you can't function. And I think that's what Dr. Sai was saying. Yeah. And that was what was fascinating about it and how it might relate to Annalisa, specifically with scrupulosity, which we discussed, which I just right. was infinitely fascinated with. Because, as she said, the religious objects could become a part of a particular pattern of obsession for people suffering from scrupulosity. And right, right. she even had said how paralysis could be a function of shutting down to gain control over a thought that you need to go away before you can take the next step or make the next move in your day-to-day -day existence. So I, I felt like there were some things there that related to Annalisa— but, you know, on the other hand, Dr. Sai seemed to be saying, well, 
in maybe extreme cases, or that's not something that you you usually associate with obsessive compulsive disorder. Yes. It did feel a little bit like there was some common ground, but it also felt a little bit like we might be trying to shoehorn it too much. People, depending upon your point of view and where you're coming from and your personal belief, spiritual or, or non or agnostic or whatever it is, everyone seems to be trying to shoehorn something into something else that fits with their line of belief or not. You know, it's like, well, you're trying to make that line of argument work. It's like, well, that can be said for the other side as well. You know, it's all based on personal beliefs. And what I found fascinating is that there are a lot of things that do line up and it fits. And as I said at the top of the show, for a lot of people, that's enough. Okay, that's it. This answers everything. It's so close to this, like it's got to be that. But I think what Dr. Sai was saying is that there are elements of this case and why it is so fascinating and why it is such a debate in the worlds of uh, demonic possession and, and church practices and psychology and psychiatry is that it goes beyond that. And I think Father Duffy was saying the same things. When we asked him about, like, are there any cases that you've seen in the field, you know, you've been out in the field 10 years or more studying cases, is there anything that you saw where it's like, okay, now this does not feel right. I've seen people screaming in demonic voices in lockup, and a lot that's very common. They all do that, and it'll freak you out. But, you know, after 10 years of seeing that, it's like, yeah, this guy, you know, I've seen this before. There is a point where even the most hardened professional who's been out in the field doing doing work will say, this is beyond the pale. This is something else. Not that even that you've never seen that before. It's just like, that is so physically impossible. But then and, that gets and, to that question, though. Are you just, yeah. for you, as the person witnessing that, are you just reacting that way simply because it's something you've never seen before? I mean, that's part of the human condition. Whenever it, it you it, see it, it, something it, yeah. you haven't seen before, you, the first thing you do, the knee-jerk reaction, is to categorize it as supernatural or magic or... <laughs> well, or, not if you don't believe in that. If you don't believe in the supernatural and the magic, yeah, if you're agnostic, you don't believe in anything spiritual, well, then somebody twisting themselves into a pretzel and spitting nails and crawling up the wall and doing backflips, well, they're pretty talented, but I have saw that in a Michael Jackson special in 86. So you have to categorize it, but with all of these fields, no matter where social workers and caseworkers and hospital emergency room attendees who've seen everything, nail gun accidents, just the worst things you can think of, and they see something and that's beyond the pale. And my point here that I'm trying to make is that it's like what we've said with these other experiences. It goes all the way back to Devil in the Diner. It's like, well, criticisms about it. You just saw somebody weird in New York at three in the morning. Big deal. You weren't there to feel it. There's an accompanying feeling that goes with it that shakes you to your core. And I believe, I maintain this, is that to the person who believes or doesn't believe, you know, we believe in the paranormal, I think you and I, clearly just to varying degrees, but something like that happens where it's beyond that, there's an accompanying deep down sense that it maybe it touches on the psychic, where it's just like, this is not part of our natural world. This is something that's creeping into another possible reality where this is not normal. This is not even in the range of extreme bizarre behavior. And I think that that's what this case 
represents, not as much as other ones, because it's certainly, you know, we've talked about that there's other cases where really bizarre things have happened and uh, in cases that have blown your mind. And it's funny, I just, over the 4th of July, I talked to the brother-in-law of a friend of ours who is a chemist, much like uh, our own Cogs. He's, uh, except he's been working in pharmaceuticals for, I don't know, 25 years or so. And he grew up in Philadelphia and he was talking to a priest, you know, an old family friend who didn't perform exorcisms, but it assisted, I guess, kind of like in a Father Roth kind of way. He sat in on a few and he said, yeah, it'll just curl your toes. You can't believe your eyes, the things I've seen. And he says, I've been a Catholic priest all my life. I've seen pretty much everything in every ritual performed and every case. And and yeah, a lot of it's like, okay, they have a mental problem they need to deal with. And then there's those few with Father John Duffy saying that uh, maybe one out of 12, it's very rare. So maybe one out of 12 cases, maybe there's something spiritual about that, some kind of incursion. And this is, applies to people who are agnostic and even atheists, somebody who's a total diehard, 100% skeptic, something will happen to them that will change their mind. And then you ask them, it's like, well, well, you don't believe any of this. You're a rational, intelligent person. You hold several degrees. What made you, you know, how could you possibly change your mind? And it's like, you weren't there. You didn't feel deep down what I did. A lot of times that feeling is instinct and or gut, which, you know, they say that you need to trust more than anything else. And I believe that. But on the other hand, I also wonder clinically if that gut feeling you're having is really just a manifestation of fight or flight because you're recognizing something that you don't understand, you don't A, want it to happen to you, B, want whoever it's happening to to attack you, so you get this feeling that we in, in the modern age, those of us that are not on a battleground or risking our lives on a daily basis, it's a feeling that we're not going to have very often, and maybe you just look at that and you say, this is freaking me out so bad. This has to be something supernatural. And that's part of the fight or flight response. Yes, I agree with all of that. What I'm saying, and maybe I'm not expressing it very well here in my own rambly way as I usually do, it's even beyond that. You and I have been in uh, maybe a couple of uh, life-threatening situations or possibly life-threatening situations. You know, you're in a car and something goes bad. <laughs> it's like what Jay You're going to tell says, that like, story on the air someday? No. So <laughs> it's like a Jay Leto, he said, you know, yeah, you're in a car and you know, you, you're racing and you know, we're going to flip. Yeah. <laughs> there was that one on YouTube where he said, we rolled that car a couple of times. Yeah. And you get that feeling. It's like, if you're not prepared for that, if you've never been in a car wreck, fortunately, I never have, never, nothing major, but you know, small to moderate and then just some fender benders. For that instant, you're scared. You freeze up. It's that fight or flight or duck, your immediate uh, life-threatening danger. To a small degree, I know what that feels like. To the person in battle, it's a frightening thing. And I've certainly talked to a lot of veterans about that. You know, it depends on how you view it. it uh, Winston Churchill, I think, it is, there's nothing more exhilarating than being shot at to no effect. <laughs> you know, yeah, to some people it's exhilarating. And then some people, you're in pants wedding time because it's so frightening that your fight or flight response takes over. And it's that sheer primal caveman panic. What I'm saying is that there are cases or instances, because I do believe in a spiritual realm or, or an otherworldly realm, that that is possible, that it goes beyond maybe even further than PTSD of something traumatic happening to you because it's unexplainable. So yes, I agree with you with what you've said, but I think that that feeling when it is something like that, it's beyond even fight or flight response and that gut feeling that you're in danger. 
Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. All right, well, let me ask you this. Before we move on to the last couple of possible medical diagnoses that we might look at for Annalisa, or the main one, there's one I want to talk yeah. about a little more at length, but there is one that we've addressed already throughout the series, and that particularly was epilepsy. And we've had we've yeah. had a few people write in who are epileptic, and thank you so much for dropping us some notes about the way we handled it and everything. I guess for you, Forrest, I wanted to ask you, because you have had some friends who suffer from grand mal seizures, right? Yeah, different types. Well, I, I currently have a, a very close friend who has epilepsy. And just to be clear, the epilepsy describes the event of a seizure, right? Or, or the case of having uh, recurrent seizures. Everybody has a slightly different type. You, you have petite mal seizures where you might even notice the person's, nothing's wrong with them. They just seem to be staring off into space, but they're having a seizure. They have a blank look on their face. They'll kind of come out of it, hopefully, in a, in a minute or two, and they may not know where they are or who you are. They've just had a seizure. And, you know, then they'll get a really terrible, dull, aching headache that could last for a couple of days. And so it's very unpleasant. Now, I haven't had any friends that have, the you know, what, what people probably think of when they think of somebody having a, an epileptic seizure, which is the grand mall where you're, you're on the floor and somebody's got to jam a pencil between your teeth so you don't swallow your tongue. That kind of thing. And, and that certainly does happen. But I haven't had uh, a friend that, that had that. When I was a child, the, the neighbors, one of their kids, uh, suffered from that. And it would be a little bit of shaking, I think, and just immobility. And so as kids, it's like you don't stand around and stare at that. So when I saw it, it was mostly kind of maybe a little bit of shaking and, and kind of staring off into space. But yeah, from what I know, just from my friends, it's really unpleasant. It's very disorienting and jarring. And if you have enough of them, it can cause some real damage. Yeah. And I feel like with regard to the seizures that Annalisa had, they felt, the doctors did, and, and John Duffy pointed this out as well, they had diagnosed her as being epileptic. As suffering. Well, she, yeah, she was having it. recurrent seizures that were severe enough that she was immobile. Uh, she exhibited a lot of the characteristics that go along with that. But again, I think there are things here that go beyond that, that she was experiencing. And again, it's subjective. You don't know really what's going on in her head. It lines up perfectly with all these symptoms. But again, in the end, there is a line where it becomes speculative. And even the best clinician or person with the most experience or written the most books or whatever it is or peer reviews, if you're not there and studying the person as a client for a good long time, you're further removed from it. And so it's harder to make maybe an effective diagnosis. But again, we're asking people to do an impossible thing when we interview them here is like, well, what do you think it is? Like, well, I'm not there, but I, I can tell you what the symptoms look like from my experience and from my training. And that's what we're doing. So keep that in mind, dear listeners, when you hear that, is like, these aren't all final opinions. Some things may make more sense to you than others. But again, it's like they've each guest or everyone that we have on here will tell you, it's like, look, it's not my case, but I can tell you what I think it is. And that's all you're going to get, just my thoughts on this. Well, and here's where we get to the last topic that I wanted to talk about, because epilepsy is not necessarily the only thing that can cause seizures. And this is something that we mentioned. I had brought this up to John Duffy, and he was not quite familiar with it. He was familiar with traditional encephalitis, but not this particular brand of it, 
known as anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis. And this is something that the ARC dug up for us, and I was just really surprised about this, and I wanted to give a shout out to uh, Stephanie for pointing this out to us. Although in the past, I think even Forrest, you had mentioned back when we did the sludge entity story, we had had a listener or two contact us and talk to us about this particular disease. Here's some information about this disease from the Anti-NMDA Receptor Encephalitis Foundation's website. I'm paraphrasing a little bit and kind of calling this down from their website. This disease occurs when antibodies produced by the body's own immune system attack NMDA receptors in the brain. NMDA receptors are proteins that control electrical impulses in the brain. Their functions are critical for judgment, perception of reality, human interaction, the formation and retrieval of memory, and the control of unconscious activities, such as breathing, swallowing, etc., also known as autonomic functions. Anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis may be associated with a tumor. If a tumor is found, it is most often a benign tumor of the ovary. It has a preponderance of occurring more with women than men, so there's something to consider. Unlike other tumors, it may contain many different types of body tissue, including, surprisingly, brain tissue, even though the tumor is not in the brain necessarily. A tumor is more likely to be found in young women who become sick during their childbearing years and is less likely in very young, from the age of 0 to 10, and older, greater than 50 years old, individuals. Anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis affects more women, 80%, than men, 20%. However, apparently, most patients do not have a tumor, and I took that from another source, but I did find that out in digging around about this. In many people with anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis, a tumor is never found. This may be because the tumor is too small to detect with imaging techniques, or because it has been destroyed by the immune system, or there is no tumor. In cases not associated with a tumor, it is not known what causes anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis. There was this list of symptoms that I thought was interesting, and you'll see that some of these, I don't remember them being described in Annalisa's case at all. However, there are others that are shockingly descriptive of her behavior. The first symptom is flu-like symptoms. Second, memory deficits, including loss of short-term memory, sleep disorders, which we know that she did have difficulty sleeping, speech dysfunction, the patient is no longer able to produce coherent language or may be completely unable to communicate, cognitive and behavioral disturbances, confused thinking, hallucinations, delusional thinking, disinhibited behaviors, and also seizures. So, and this is what I want to talk about with these seizures and the disinhibited behaviors that also describes some of Annalisa's actions. Movement disorders, and listen to this, usually of the arms and legs and the mouth and tongue, but may include full body spasms. These types of movements are very common in anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis and the patient is unable to control them. They are often quite severe, requiring the patient to be restrained and sedated for their own safety and that of their caregivers. Sometimes patients are unable to move and may appear like a statue holding the same position for hours or days and catatonia. So that describes a great deal of Annalisa's activity. There's uh, additional symptoms here that don't necessarily fit for her though, or at least from what we've read. But that particular one, the movement disorder one, I thought sounded a lot like her. Now, that website goes on to say that the vast majority of patients experience a combination of symptoms and signs from that list. Symptoms may come and go over the course of the illness. 
Rarely, in less than 5% of the cases, psychiatric symptoms, hallucinations, mood disturbances, and delusions may be the only symptom. Many people complain of flu-like symptoms around the time that their disease begins. Females are approximately four times more likely to be affected than males, and although it is a serious life-threatening disease, the majority of patients who receive prompt diagnosis and treatment go on to make a good recovery. This is interesting. This disease wasn't discovered or even officially named until 2007. So it's a fairly new discovery, and that's a good 31 years after Annalise's death. The reason that a lot of our listeners have probably heard of it is because there was a best-selling book written by the New York Post reporter Susanna Cahalan. The book was called Brain on Fire, My Month of Madness, and that was actually eventually made into a movie, which came out just last year, and I'm super curious to read the book and see the movie as well. But according to Cahalan, who also, by the way, has a fascinating TED Talk on this, which we'll link to in the show notes, Doctors familiar with this disease are fairly convinced that it may account for historical cases of possession. So I thought that was really interesting. So when you look at the big picture with this particular disease, which they don't really understand and they don't know where it comes from, it does sound a lot like it could be a plausible explanation, to me anyway, for most of what was going on with Annalisa Michel. Yes, well, that was suggested to us, that book anyway, by a listener to either the Sludge Entity episode or the shadow person episode is something we should check into. But of course, I think the email from this person was more like, this is it, you idiots. <laughs> Why are you considering <laughs> other stuff? This is the answer to this. Go check it out. So we do get stuff like that, but it's fascinating. And it's something both Father Duffy and Dr. Sai had mentioned is that, and I've said it myself, being a dilettante novice here about it, all this, is that there's just so much we still don't know. What did I just say? We were discovering things all the time. So just in the last few years, this has popped up on the radar, and it's fascinating. And the more we delve into and become advanced with uh, understanding neurology and psychiatry and psychology, we'll be discovering more things. But it covers a lot, and some things really hit the nail on the head, I believe. I agree with you, especially with the, uh, you know, the physical uh, immobility and, and things like that. But I was talking about this with Scott. It's like when you have things that kind of edge beyond, not to say that, you know, anything that's really, really ex extreme as far as behavior or an incident can't be classified under these diagnoses. But Annalisa, it would have been reported that at some point she was so far gone or so erratic that she was eating spiders and drinking her own urine or looking it up off the floor. So... Yeah, that's extreme, and it could be probably covered under one of these diagnoses, but at some point for that person, I, you know what I'm saying? It's hard to tell. It goes under what Dr. Sai talked about earlier in your conversation, and you'd asked her about things that didn't fit the bill. It's speaking in tongues or different voices, and she said, well, yeah, that's not really typical. Look, nothing's impossible. If you had extreme OCD, even if you were germ-phobic, at what point did these fight? Urine and spiders are probably the last thing you want to touch. If you have that form of OCD. But maybe that's not what she had. So, and you know, speak I, and in terms of those foreign language, I can't remember if Duffy said this in the interview. I think he did. I know it was in his book. Yeah. He did encounter a case with someone who was speaking Farsi. Yeah, yeah I do remember that. The person that. had never spoken Farsi and had had no prior exposure to Farsi either. Yeah, zero. He had training in in the, the Middle East or he'd been deployed to the Middle East as a military policeman, I believe. And, and yes. he had a friend who spoke Farsi who had to translate. Yes. That was part of his example of like, now you're getting beyond the pale. How does this person pull this knowledge from the ether. And to him, that's a, an example of somebody going beyond the pale, beyond the 
defining line of something that's beyond uh, human capability. But again, is it that crazy? We, you know, I always point to this, Daniel Tammet, the person who's a very high-functioning autistic who can recite the number pi and did for five hours continuously, not missing a single digit. How is that possible? Yeah. Well, I don't think that that's <laughs> supernatural. He's pulling it from somewhere deep inside the brain, and maybe he is tapped into what a lot of people who believe in this will call the band of thought that encircles the earth, and that's right. Not which a is new in idea. that case, it's not internal. It's he's drawing on an external source for the information. Right, and then if you go even deeper than that, there's a lot of people who believe that that is totally natural. That is not unnatural. We all have that capability to draw upon that, this spiritus mundi, this band of thought. We're all connected. But the modern person just ignores that. So it becomes unnatural to them, but it is actually really natural. We're all one with the universe and one with the creator, and you just have learned to open up that channel and let it flow. But to everybody else, that seems wacko. So the other thing I want to mention from earlier, the seizures specifically did not fit the bill with OCD. But maybe it sounds more like anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis. Specifically, when you look at seizures, and these neurological experts were looking at them back in the 70s, and they're right. saying, this is epilepsy, this is epilepsy. They had never heard of this disease, and the seizures may be similar. And in the case of this encephalitis, it would appear from what research that I've done that the seizures associated with it can be far worse and more extreme in nature and appearance than the ones that are traditionally associated with epilepsy. Right, right. So even the physical part is personal. I think we had some comments saying, when I was a kid or I practiced yoga, I can bend over backwards and grab my heels. I will say, if you try that with Scott or I, it's going to kill us. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's, that's not well, physically possible. she did say, possible. she came back, I said, well, when, yeah, my son can, he could do the most complex yoga pose known to man, but he's eight. He's like a little tiny rubber band. It well, would not yeah, work yeah. with me. But then she said, no, no, I'm talking about when I was, I think she said 11 or, or 12 or 14. So no, it's, it's, you know, still. What I'm saying is that when I was little, I was in martial arts too. So I was a little older than your son, probably 10 or 11, and I could do the sideways splits. Yeah. I could do a sidekick above my head, but it's like, my point is that as flexible as I was and as much as I stretch, I could never get past those last three or four inches down to the floor. And if, you know, somebody just jumped on my shoulders, it's going to snap some tendons. It just sounds yeah. awful. But there are physical limits. It's possible with some people, not everybody. And so certainly when you see something like that, and it's a 50-year-old guy doing some crazy acrobatics, I think that's when uh, Father Duffy was saying like, okay, now we're in different territory here. So this is really fascinating. I'm glad you brought up the aspect here with anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis. And I think it's certainly something we should look into, or everyone should, the medical field, especially as we go forward. But my final thing is that Again, it doesn't solve all historical cases of like, well, everybody who claimed to be possessed, all the saints who did crazy things, Saint Denis with the <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but that's when Doctor Sai was saying that they there yeah. was some belief even in the clergy that some of the saints may have been suffering from scrupulosity. No, I totally believe that, and the description of scrupulosity that uh, you have some aspects of it. My only point here, it could be a little bit of that and a little bit of everything else, and we just don't know. The recipe here. We don't know the mix. Uh, yeah, and maybe get, some you know. of these things open the door for additional influences, like we talked about with Orfeo, you know, right. and it's, it's, and As you always say, it's like a chicken and egg thing. There's one onset or one incident of something 
trigger another. And so what came first? Is it a spiritual incursion triggering some kind of real physiological effect or mental disease? It could have something to do with the location. It's like the boy that was in the basement of the house in a, a haunting in Connecticut, they, and they found out that the room he oh, was in yeah. used to be a morgue, and right. all these weird things started happening to him, and then when they, and he got obsessed with being in there, and it got darker, and yeah. all of it snowballed for him into a bad situation. But when they got him out of there, he got better. I mean, of course, now you could say, well, yeah. there's chemicals were present or something, and that was the problem. <laughs> radon, yeah, yeah. leaking gas. <laughs> yeah. It's what they a, did check for yeah. radon, though, I'm pretty sure. And there, there was no, those, radon, but... see, those are things that are easy to, to check for. Was he eating paint chips? Because, yeah, there's some causes, chemical, environmental causes that can, that can lead to uh, abnormal behavior. But two things I wanted to mention. I do believe that uh, sometimes it can be involved with the location, as what you just mentioned, and also with our friends and their son, Jack, and the sludge entity. It yeah. seemed to be tied to that house. If you believe that, then it had something to do with the Native American spirits that were there, plus something that was kind of subhuman, not exactly a demon, and not exactly possessing the kid, but certainly a molestation that was sapping energy and life force in some way. So, see, there's all these varying shades. It's never one thing or the other. You can't just put this under one heading and, and be done with it and tie it up with a little bow. Scott, there's a fight going on. What? What? Outside? Should I move the car? No, 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 no. It's a fight to save Alaska's wild salmon. Ah, you've been reading the information pamphlets that sometimes come with your Blue Apron meals. I like that not only do you get fresh food with Blue Apron, you get an education about your food. That's obvious fresh food is the best, but keeping it that way and getting it to your table in a responsible way takes no small effort. Did you know that about 100 years ago, fish canning corporations were setting up mile-long nets and permanent barricades to trap salmon, which wasn't letting them spawn naturally, and the whole fishery almost collapsed? In fact, in 1953, President Eisenhower declared Alaska's salmon country a federal disaster, and prior to the 1980s, mostly everyone in the lower 48 states got their salmon from a can. Making sure you have a sustainable supply chain of fresh food from farm or sea to table is one of Blue Apron's goals. The seafood is sourced under standards developed in partnership with the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch, and they've also established partnerships with over 150 local farms, fisheries, and ranchers across the United States. That means it's not only a responsible way to get your food, but you also end up with better tasting meals. And all the packaging is recyclable, biodegradable, or reusable. In fact, I'm using a Blue Apron ice pack right now to keep my laptop from melting down. Well, actually, it's to keep the fan from coming on. Yeah, that's because you have 80 tabs open. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Come see why Blue Apron is the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country by going to blueapron.com slash astonishing. You can check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash astonishing. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Hi, I'm Autumn. And when I'm not knee-deep in corn making crop circles, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Now, let's get back to the show. One of our, our favorite fans, Round Daddy on Twitter... Yes. Uh, James Strebel brought to our attention a very interesting case. The other thing I wanted to mention is that this is not just happening in the Middle Ages or in the mid-17th century. 
or even the 1970s, like with Linda Blair and the Exorcist and all that, and now it's done. There are cases still happening, and ones that are just as crazy and fascinating and bewildering and frightening as any of those. And so one that he brought to our attention, this takes place in Gary, Indiana, with the family of LaToya Amons and her nine-year-old son, who was believed to be possessed. And... There's a actual a really good article that we'll post online from the Indiana Star or the Indy Star that covers it, and they brought in a priest. She did all the right things. She She's a mother with several children. They believe that that was somehow tied to that house, and it was a rental house that they were staying in. This is interesting in this case because it is much more recent. This is 2014, I believe, or the end. It started happening around the end of 2013 and took place over a, a period of several months. And she's a struggling single mother, I believe, and, and uh, did all the right things. But of course, now we, with our legal processes, she had her kids taken away from her because you can't quantify this. And so that's what the system does. And I don't blame them. They have to take a look at this. Like, what's going on here? Let's find out what's happening. I mean, this is such a bizarre and compelling case for example, her nine-year-old boy was walking backward up a wall in the presence of a family case manager and a hospital nurse who I believe ran out of the room. The guy, I think it was a guy who was a hospital attendant. He was so freaked out, he ran out of the room, wouldn't come back in when yeah. he saw that. So this was investigated by the Gary Police Department, and uh, a priest eventually came in who performed an exorcism. And I believe at this time, thankfully, the boy was not hurt. It seemed, whatever happened, it seemed to work. And I think getting out of that house had a lot to do with it. But again, it's a fascinating thing. It was covered in great depth and, and very well by the Indy Star. So we'll have a link to that. And you can read up all about that. But it still goes on. Yeah, And it, can, it does. And it can happen at any time. All right. Well, before we move into conclusions, I did want to mention one particularly frightening case of anti-receptor NMDA encephalitis. And that was Newt the polar bear, also a resident of Germany, by the way, Aww. in the zoo in Berlin, <laughs> was yeah. diagnosed with anti-receptor NMDA encephalitis. And ultimately, it killed the poor guy. And mm. that was the first case of it being diagnosed outside of a human. So now they know that other animals can get this. And by the way, I mean, if a polar bear isn't scary enough, imagine encountering a polar bear with <laughs> symptoms of possession. Well... <laughs> <laughs> a possessed depends, polar bear. That's well, what, would be my are. luck if yeah. I went camping. I would. That would. That's what would. Show no, up. but probably too. Maybe too depressed to to do anything about it. Well, and that pretty much brings us to the close of this series, and it's time to talk a little bit about our conclusions and where we're at on all of it. I think the bottom line for me is that. Obviously, mental illness can be frightening, not only for the person experiencing it, but also for the people around that person. So you have to. Put that in the mix with everybody when they're trying to figure out what is going on with someone. I thought it was really interesting when Father Duffy, our former Father Duffy, had said that he'd heard people having psychotic breaks and the screaming was very similar to the recorded screaming that Annalisa had during some of her exorcisms. So that to me was an interesting viewpoint that I hadn't thought about because I have not been around anyone experiencing a psychotic break. And I don't know what that sounds like. So I thought that was an interesting perspective. But I also believe him when he says he saw something strange at the sites of mass graves in Bosnia. And I think that all of that stuff can live together 
But what was interesting to me about his book, for example, was in taking the the approaches, do you treat one side of this to the exclusion of the other? And it, it doesn't make sense because even Dr. Sy said when we're treating scrupulosity, we get the clergy involved. And who is not to say how beneficial or not beneficial that is? Even if you're an atheist, if the person who is experiencing it is getting some relief or maybe there's some other beneficial side effect that's helping them get better through this multi-pronged approach— for whatever the reason is, whether we may not, and it could be a reason we may never understand, then why would you deny them that? But on the other hand, as Duffy said, you have to monitor everything about somebody going into this situation so that they don't come to any further harm or additional harm in the process of trying to free them from whatever is going on or, or help them get better. And for me, I think the thing about this case was, you know, my final conclusion, and, and it was something that I thought about when we were doing part two, and I, I'm still thinking about, is if you believe in demons and evil and nefarious behavior from the other side, why can't that creep into this situation through the people that are treating the person who is supposedly afflicted? What if the evil in this situation manifested itself through those people? like Father Renz and Father Alt and her own parents. What if we're looking at the possession in this case and we're looking at the wrong clay pots, as John Duffy said? What It's like the best opportunity for a misdirection. It's the ultimate deception. While the world looks at poor Annalisa, maybe the real possession or demonic molestation or influence was over the people treating her by allegedly strapping her to a chair, starving her, depriving her of liquids, and assaulting her until her body had nothing left to give. Maybe that whole case went exactly the way those demons wanted it to. Yeah, I tend to agree with a lot of that, actually. We just don't know in certain aspects. You know, but I want to mention something here. Now, I remember this from reading the book, and I believe it was uh, one of Annalisa's uh, neurologists or uh, could have been the psychologist or one of her fa uh, the family doctor. Sure, we can give medication for this, and it might help. And we can do all we can with Western medicine. And I'm paraphrasing hugely, of course. So apologies for that. But, you know, he's saying that it would be a mistake not to look at the person's religious views because that can have a part in it too. And I think that's a little bit what Dr. Sai was saying, and, and maybe Father John as well, is that for the person's well-being, and it's a point I, I brought up here a, a little while ago, you have to look at everything for that specific individual. If they really believe in a spiritual life and are very pious, and that's a large part of their life, you have to address that as well. Because as a clinician, you just can't say like, well, you have this. So here's some medication, take this, get over it. Because it's not ultimately going to work. You have to address every part of the person because that's what makes them up. Even if you don't believe in it, if you're atheist and you say like, well, that person believes in this and that's kind of baloney, but you know, really if they just took this medication, that'll fix them. That's not going to help. So in pointing to that, my overview, especially with this case here and my final thoughts on it, just personally, is that I believe you're right. I think there are, are a lot of factors going on here and who knows to what percentages I believe that there could be an, an evil influence here, not just with uh, Annalisa, which is the most direct, but possibly with the parents. And that's one part where I have a little trouble with that diagnosis is the case of abuse. It's a very strong claim. And again, with me personally and having my friends come on the show for the sludge entity, that rubs me the wrong way. Not that Father John said that because he's going off of his years of experience in the field and the symptoms, but... 
it's a very strong accusation, especially when you're accusing somebody of beating their own child to death, essentially, or that results in aiding of that death. So I don't know, but, but it sounds, when I hear that, it's like, yeah, I mean, you know, we had somebody write in, it's like, yeah, the bruising around the eyes, that sounds a lot like a punch. I can't argue with that, but what's causing that? What are the influences? And like you just said with the parents, is there some evil influence getting in through them? That's something that I think Dr. Scott Peck was saying. is like, what better place for evil to hide? If the intention of evil is to deceive, what better vessel, what better clay pot than somebody you would want to tend to trust that's on the side of God? What better place for evil to hide? So he, he was saying, Scott Peck was saying that, yeah, there's probably a lot of evil with people who are in the church because it's a great place to be, if that's your intention, because you have the ultimate cloak of deception there. So in this case, my final thoughts is none of us will ever really know. We're just not going to. She's not around anymore. You can't ask her. You can't get inside her head. She may not even be able to express fully, if she were still alive today, what was going on with her, because at some point she was that far out of it. So you'll never get a final conclusion on this, like so much of the other things we cover in the paranormal. But I believe personally, like you, Scott, that there's a lot of little elements going on here to varying degrees. I don't think it's just one or the other, but it fits a lot of these molds, but not completely. So like so many things that we've seen this past week, and like a lot of the stories that we cover on the paranormal, when you get to the end, you may not find any more answers. What you're left with are just more questions. That's going to wrap up our series on Annalisa Michel. We're dark next week, but we'll be back the week after that with a new episode on the Kelly Hopkinsville incident. Special thanks to Dr. Jennifer Sai and the Houston OCD program. Please remember to support our sponsors or visit patreon.com slash astonishinglegends to get cool swag and access to behind-the-scenes areas in the Astonishing Research Corps. Special thanks to John Bolin. Hi, I'm Claire. I'm Jim. Hi, I'm Autumn Mornjuk. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees, and the theme is by Judson Crane. Sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to The Ark and its lead researcher, Tess Feifel. But most importantly, we want to thank our listeners. You can find us online at astonishinglegends.com, as well as Facebook, Patreon, Twitter, and Instagram. Copyright Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Good night. Mm-hmm.